Part One of A Spaceship Named McGuire by Randall Garrett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. A Spaceship Named McGuire by Randall Garrett. Part One. This story appeared in Analog, July of 1961. No, nobody ever deliberately named a spaceship that. The staid and stolid minds that run the companies which design and build spaceships rarely let their minds run to fancy. The only example I can think of is the unsung hero of the last century, who had puckish imagination enough to name the first atomic-powered submarine Nautilus. Such minds are rare. Most minds equate dignity with dullness. This ship happened to have a magnetogravitic drive, which automatically put it into the M.G. class. It also happened to be the first successful model to be equipped with a Yale robotic brain, so it was given the designation M.G.Y.R. 7. The first six had had more bugs in them than a Leopoldville tenement. So somebody at Yale, another unsung hero, named the ship McGuire. It wasn't official, but it stuck. The next step was to get someone to test Hop McGuire. They needed just the right man, quick-minded, tough, imaginative, and a whole slew of complimentary adjectives. They wanted a perfect superman to test pilot their baby, even if they knew they'd eventually have to take second best. It took the Yale Space Foundation a long time to pick the right man. No, I'm not the guy who tested the McGuire. I'm the guy who stole it. Shalimar Ravenhurst is not the kind of bloke that very many people can bring themselves to like, and in this respect I'm like a great many people, if not more so. In the first place, a man has no right to go around toting a name like Shalimar. It makes names like Beverly and Leslie and Evelyn sound almost hairy-chested. You want a dozen other reasons, you'll get them. Shalimar Ravenhurst owned a little planetoid out in the belt, a hunk of nickel-iron about the size of a smallish mountain, with a G-pool measurable in fractions of a centimeter per second squared. If you're susceptible to space sickness, that kind of gravity is about as much help as aspirin would have been to Marie Antoinette. You get the feeling of a floor beneath you, but there's a distinct impression that it won't be there for long. It keeps trying to drop out from under you. I dropped my flitterboat on the landing field and looked around without any hope of seeing anything. I didn't. The field was about the size of a football field, a bright shiny expanse of rough polished metal, carved in smooth flat from the nickel-iron of the planetoid itself. It not only served as a landing field, but as a reflector beacon, a mirror that flashed out the sun's reflection as the planetoid turned slowly on its axis. I'd homed in on that beacon, and now I was sitting on it. There wasn't a soul in sight. Off to one end of the rectangular field was a single dome, a hemisphere about twenty feet in diameter and half as high, nothing else. I sighed and flipped on the magnetic anchor, which grabbed hold of the metal beneath me, and held the flitterboat tightly to the surface. Then I cut the drive, 
plugged in the telephone and punched for local. The automatic finder searched around for the Ravenhurst tickler signal, found it, and sent out a beep along the same channel. I waited while the thing beeped twice. There was a click and a voice said, Raven's Rest, yes? It wasn't Ravenhurst. I said, This is Daniel Oak. I want to talk to Mr. Ravenhurst. Mr. Oak? But you weren't expected until tomorrow. Fine, I'm early. Let me talk to Ravenhurst. But Mr. Ravenhurst wasn't expecting you to— I got all of a sudden exasperated. Unless your instruments are running on second-hand flashlight batteries, you've known I was coming for the past half-hour. I followed Ravenhurst's instructions not to use radio, but he should know I'm here by this time. He told me to come as fast as possible, and I followed those instructions, too. I always follow instructions when I'm paid enough. Now I'm here. Tell Ravenhurst I want to talk to him, or I'll simply flit back to Eros and thank him much for a pretty retainer that didn't do him any good, but gave me a nice profit for my trouble. One moment, please, said the voice. It took a minute and a half, which was about nine billion jiffies too long, as far as I was concerned. Then another voice said, Oak? Wasn't expecting you till tomorrow. So I hear. I thought you were in a hurry, but if you're not, you can just provide me with wine, women, and other necessities until tomorrow. That's above and beyond my fee, of course, since you're wasting my time and I'm evidently not wasting yours. I couldn't be sure whether the noise he made was a grunt or a muffled chuckle, and I didn't much care. I'm sorry, Oak, I really didn't expect you so soon, but I do want to—I want you to get started right away. Leave your flitterboat where it is. I'll have someone take care of it. Walk on over to the dome and come on in. And he cut off. I growled something I was glad he didn't hear, and hung up. I wished that I'd had a vision unit on the phone. I'd like to have seen his face. Although I knew I might not have learned much more from his expression than I had from his voice. I got out of the flitterboat and walked across the dome, my magnetic soles making subdued clicking noises inside the suit as they caught and released the metallic plane beneath me. Beyond the field I was surrounded by a lumpy horizon and a black sky full of bright, hard stars. The green light was on when I reached the door to the dome, so I opened it and went on in, closing it behind me. I flipped the toggle that began flooding the room with air. When it was up to pressure, a trapdoor in the floor of the dome opened, and a crew-cut, blond young man stuck his head up. Mr. Oak? I toyed for an instant, with the idea of giving him a sarcastic answer. Who else would it be? How many other visitors were running around on the surface of Raven's Rest? Instead, I said, that's right. My voice must have sounded pretty muffled to him through my fishbowl. Come on down, Mr. Oak. You can shuck your vac suit below. I thought below was a pretty ambiguous term on a low-G lump like this, but I followed him down the ladder. The ladder was a necessity for fast transportation. If I had just tried to jump down from one floor to the next, it would have taken me until a month from next St. Swithin's Day to land. The door overhead closed, and I could hear the pumps start cycling. The warning light turned red. 
I took off my suit, hung it in a handy locker, showing that all I had on underneath was my skin-tight union suit. "'All right if I wear this?' I asked the blonde young man. "'Or should I borrow a set of shorts and a jacket? Most places in the belt a union suit is considered normal dress. A man never knows when he might have to climb into a back suit fast. But there are a few hoity-toity places on Eros and Ceres, and a few of the other well-settled places, where a man or woman is required to put on shorts and jacket before entering. And in good old New York City a man and woman were locked up for indecent exposure a few months ago. The judge threw the case out of court, but he told them they were lucky they hadn't been picked up in Boston. It seems that the eye of the blue nose turns a jauntist yellow at the sight of a union suit, and he sees red. But there were evidently no blue noses here. Perfectly all right, Mr. Oak, the blonde young man said affably. Then he coughed politely and added, But I'm afraid I'll have to ask you to take off the gun. I glanced at the holster under my armpit, walked back over to the locker, opened it, and took out my vac suit. Hey, said the blond young man, where are you going? Back to my boat, I said calmly. I'm getting tired of this runaround already. I'm a professional man, not a hard flunky. If you'd called a doctor, you wouldn't tell him to leave his little black bag behind. If you'd called a lawyer, you wouldn't make him check his briefcase. Or if you did, he'd tell you to drop dead. I was asked to come here as fast as possible, and when I do, I'm told to wait till tomorrow. Now you want me to check my gun? The hell with you. Merely a safety precaution, said the blond young man worriedly. You think I'm going to shoot Ravenhurst, maybe? Don't be an idiot. I started climbing into my back suit. Just a minute, please, Mr. Oak, said a voice from a hidden speaker. It was Ravenhurst, and he actually sounded apologetic. You mustn't blame Mr. Feller. Those are my standing orders, and I failed to tell Mr. Feller to make an exception in your case. The error was mine. I know. I said, I wasn't blaming Mr. Feller. I wasn't even talking to him. I was addressing you. I believe you. Uh, Mr. Feller, our guest has gone to all the trouble of having a suit made with the space under the arm for that gun. I see no reason to make him remove it. A pause. Again, Mr. Oak, I apologize. I really want you to take this job. I was already taking off the back suit again. But... Ravenhurst continued smoothly. If I fail to live up to your ideas of courtesy again, I hope you'll forgive me in advance. I'm sometimes very forgetful, and I don't like it when a man threatens to leave my employ twice in the space of fifteen minutes. I'm not in your employ yet, Ravenhurst, I said. If I accept the job, I won't threaten to quit again unless I mean to carry it through, and it would take a lot more than common discourtesy to make me do that. On the other hand, your brand of discourtesy is a shade above the common. I thank you for that at least, said Ravenhurst. Show him to my office, Mr. Feller. The blond young man nodded wordlessly and led me from the room. Walking under low-G conditions is like nothing else in this universe. I don't mean trotting around on Luna. One-sixth G is practically homelike in comparison. 
and zero-g is so devoid of orientation that it gives the sensation of falling endlessly until you get used to it. But a planetoid is in a different class altogether. Remember that dream, almost everybody's had it, where you're suddenly able to fly? It isn't flying exactly, it's sort of swimming in the air, like being underwater except that the medium around you isn't so dense and viscous, and you can breathe. Remember? Well, that's the feeling you get on a low-G planetoid. Your arms don't tend to hang at your sides as they do on Earth or Luna, because the muscular tension tends to hold them out, just as it does in zero-G, but there is still a definite sensation of up and down. If you push yourself off the floor, you tend to float in a long, slow, graceful arc, provided you don't push too hard. Magnetic souls are practically a must. I followed the blonde Mr. Feller down a series of long corridors which had been painted a pale green, which gave me the feeling that I was underwater. There were doors spaced at intervals along the corridor walls. Occasionally one of them would open, and a busy-looking man would cross the corridor, open another door, and disappear. From behind the doors I could hear the drum of distant sounds. We finally ended up in front of what looked like the only wooden door in the place. When you're carving an office and residence out of a nickel-iron planetoid, importing wood from Earth is a purely luxury matter. There was no nameplate on that mahogany red door. There didn't need to be. Feller touched the thin line circle in the door jamb. You don't knock? I asked with mock seriousness. No, said Feller with a straight face. I have to signal. Knocking wouldn't do any good. That's just wood veneer over a three-inch thick steel slab. The door opened, and I stepped inside. I have never seen a room quite like it. The furniture was all that same mahogany, a huge desk, nineteenth-century baroque, with carved and curlicued legs, two chairs carved the same, with padded seats of maroon leather and a chair behind the desk that might have doubled as a bishop's throne with even fancier carving. Off to one side was a long couch upholstered in a lighter maroon. The wall-to-wall -wall carpeting was a rich burgundy, with a pile deep enough to run a reaper through. The walls were paneled with mahogany and hung with a couple of huge tapestries done in maroon, purple, and red. A bookcase along one wall was filled with books, every one of which had been rebound in maroon leather. It was like walking into a cask of old claret, or old blood. The man sitting behind the desk looked as though he'd been built to be the lightest spot in an analogous color scheme. His suit was mauve with purple piping, and his wide, square, saggy face was florid. On his nose and cheeks, Tiny lines of purple tracing made darker areas in his skin. His hair was a medium brown, but it was clipped so short that the scalp showed faintly through, and amid all that overwhelming background, even the hair looked vaguely violet. "'Come in, Mr. Oak,' said Shalimar Ravenhurst. I walked toward him across the burgundy carpet, while the blonde young man discreetly closed the door behind me, leaving us alone. I didn't blame him. I was wearing a yellow Union suit, and I hate to think what I must have looked like in that room. 
I sat down in one of the chairs facing the desk, after giving a brief shake to a thick-fingered, well-manicured, slightly oily hand. He opened a crystal decanter that stood on one end of the desk. Have some Madeira, Mr. Oak? Or would you like something else? I never drink spirits at this time of night. I fought down an impulse to ask for a shot of red-eye. The Madeira will be fine, Mr. Ravenhurst. He poured and handed me a stemmed glass nearly brimming with wine. I joined him in an appreciative sip, then waited while he made up his mind to talk. He leaned across the desk, looking at me with his small, dark eyes. He had an expression on his face that looked as if it were trying to sneer and leer at the same time, but couldn't get much beyond the smirk stage. Mr. Oak, I have investigated you thoroughly. As thoroughly as it can be done, at least. My attorneys say that your reputation is A-1, that you get things done and rarely disappoint a client. He paused, as if waiting for a comment. I gave him nothing. After a moment he went on, I hope that's true, Mr. Oak, because I'm going to have to trust you. He leaned back in his chair again, his eyes still on me. Men very rarely like me, Mr. Oak. I am not a likable man. I do not pretend to be. That is not my function. He said it as if he had said it many times before, believed it, and wished it wasn't so. I do not ask that you like me, he continued. I only ask that you be loyal to my interests for the duration of this assignment. Another pause. I have been assured by others that this will be so. I would like your assurance. If I take this assignment, Mr. Ravenhurst, I told him, I'll be working for you. I can be bought, but once I'm bought, I stay bought. Now what seems to be your trouble? He frowned. Well, now let's get one thing settled. Are you working for me or not? I won't know that until I find out what the job is. His frown deepened. Now see here, this is very confidential work. What happens if I tell you and you decide not to work for me? I sighed. Ravenhurst, right now you're paying me to listen to you. Even if I don't take your job, I'm going to bill you for expenses and time to come all the way out here. So as far as listening is concerned, I'm working for you now. If I don't like the job, I'll still forget everything I'm told, all right? He didn't like it, but he had no choice. All right, he said. He polished off his glass of Madeira and refilled it. My own glass was still nearly full. End of Part 1